0: Well, good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew Wild, and I'm so glad that you've joined us to worship the Lord. And if you're our guest, it's our hope that you would leave here encouraged in your faith. And uh, if you are a guest, I just want to say whether it's our church or it's a church down the street, we really believe that it's God's desire for you to be connected in a local congregation. Uh, and I say that because I really feel like God wants it so that church isn't just some event that we attend on Sunday morning, but it's also it's a family that we're a part of. And I confess I'm a little bit biased, but I think this is a great family to be a part of. And so if you are um, sort of discerning from the Lord what your church should be, I would just say that if you're looking for a very grace-driven, Bible-centered, mission-minded church, I feel like we're your place. And if you sense God is maybe nudging you to go from being a, uh, a spectator in his church to one who is a participant, to one who is engaged in the life of his church, I just want to commend uh, two upcoming events to you. The first is a, a journey interest meeting that's happening on Wednesday evening, August 17th. Come join Pastor David Holcomb for some dessert and learn more about our journey groups. And then also on Sunday morning, August 28th, We'll have our Taste of Community event uh, in a room right over there that we we call our Community Room, again, led by uh, David Holcomb. And both of these events would be great ways to to take a next step in getting more connected and also in growing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Well, I don't know about you all, but um, I feel like I'm still trying to figure out life. Uh, There have been moments in my life where my heart has just felt full and contented I can think of times where I've come home from the neighborhood pool after spending a few hours hanging out with friends and family, grilling, playing some beach volleyball, and just standing there on my front porch and feeling like I wouldn't trade places with anyone in the world. I can recall times where I'm out there cutting the grass in the backyard and I'm looking back at the house and the family inside it, And just thinking to myself, man, what more could a guy want? And then there have been other times when I've walked into the garage and I've seen the yard equipment and the bikes and the scooters all stacked up on top of each other. And I've just thought to myself, man, wouldn't it be nice to have a different house? (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice to have a house that that had a garage that wasn't designed to accommodate a Mini Cooper? Or, Or even a garage with taller ceilings like my buddy Dave's. If I'm being perfectly honest, there's um, times when contentment feels a little bit like holding water in my hands. And I look down and it's there for a moment, but it has a way of seeping out. And the crazy thing is, I know it doesn't make any sense. I know on paper my my circumstances would be the envy of 98% of the world's population. And yet it doesn't matter. Contentment can still elude me at times. Maybe, maybe some of you can relate. You've got two cars in the driveway, you've got decent health, you've got uh, a good job, you've got a beautiful family. And, and yet um, there's an itch. There, there's a yearning um, that doesn't seem to be able to be scratched. Something seems just beyond reach. And maybe it's because the guys and gals in the marketing department have done their jobs well. I recall one time I was attending a, this um, conference, and a former advertising executive for Porsche was speaking, and I'm not knocking Porsche here, because I'm pretty sure this is probably true of all the car companies, um, but he, he said that the essence of his job was to stir up discontentment. He, he said he was doing his job well. What they wanted him to do was kind of make you feel like your life wasn't complete unless you owned one of their vehicles. Harvard Business Review uh, ran an article two years ago about a study uh, undertaken where they looked at survey data that was compared over 31 years uh, across 27 European countries involving 900,000 people. So that's just under a million people. That's a pretty broad survey. And the researchers found this, that the higher a country's ad spend, the more they spend on advertising the less satisfied its citizens were a year later. So there was an inverse relationship between advertising and happiness. And and not only do we have to contend with the commercials and the billboards and the internet pop-ups, there's also something new, relatively new, we call it social media. And if we're just going to be honest with ourselves here, I I think all of us, we want to be happy for our friends when we see pictures of them vacationing somewhere fun or out to dinner somewhere nice or enjoying a weekend at the lake with mutual friends or cruising around on that new toy. I mean, really, I want to be happy for you if you get that new Triumph motorcycle. But sometimes I want the Triumph motorcycle, you know? I mean, sometimes if we're just being honest with each other, if you're home on the couch and you're eating leftovers that have been warmed up in the microwave, and and you see a picture of your friends out enjoying a good night on the town, I mean, doesn't that just meddle with your sense of contentment just a little bit? You don't have to raise your hands here, but anyone else ever come across a a picture on social media and thought, you know, I wish I had her career, or her looks, or her well-mannered kids, or her home, or I wish I had a job that pays like his, or the opportunity to travel like he does, or the kind of leisure time that he has, the free time, or his athleticism. Why is that? Is discontentment a malaise that only affects a certain segment of the population? If you have a six-figure salary, or maybe if you reach the age of 50, are you immune from it? Are you insulated from discontentment if you land a well paying job or a home in a certain neighborhood or a comfortable retirement? What do you think? Which way are we going to shake our heads? We're we going to go north, south, or east, west? Yeah, you're right, east, west. We all know the answer to that. There are plenty of people that have decent jobs and nice cars and disposable incomes who, by all accounts, have some really good things going for them, but you know what they don't have? They don't have contentment. You can find discontent people living in the penthouses of Manhattan, and in the the trailer parks of um, rural Kentucky, and even in the suburbs of Winston-Salem. So what's the key to contentment? I I don't know anyone who um, would say, yeah, I'm going to pick discontentment over contentment. I think it's something we all want, but not all of us have. However, we could say this, that God wants it for us. It's one of the great privileges of the Christian faith. And so this morning I'd like to answer the question, how can we experience contentment? Uh, But before uh, we get into that, I I thought it just might be helpful if we take a minute and we define contentment. So the word that we translate, um, contentment, I'm going to give you a definition and then we can just unpack it a bit here. We could say that it's an inner- sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. So said another way, it's a spirit that's free from worry or edginess or angst because it's untroubled by any change in fortune or external circumstance. One Puritan writer defined contentment as simply a settled temper. It's a settled temper. This word was uh, frequently used by the ancient philosophers. For the cynics and the Stoics, contentment was the highest of virtues. It epitomized their ideal. It conveyed the mindset of a person who was independent of all people and events. Uh, The Stoics believed that a man should be sufficient unto himself for all things, and able by the power of his will to resist the force of circumstances. So this is someone who could sort of just stick his chin into the wind and let everything roll off his shoulders, someone who would be unfazed by what was swirling around him, someone who possessed within themselves all that they needed for their own happiness. And the Apostle Paul, who was familiar with the vocabulary of the philosophers, he borrows this word, and then he Christianizes its meaning. He gives it a little twist. He agrees with the Stoics and the Cynics that it's good for a person to have a frame of mind that's independent of external circumstances, but he provides a Christian basis for it, which we'll see later. Now, just to be clear, uh, contentment shouldn't be misunderstood to mean that one no longer has desires. This isn't the same thing as apathy. Apathy. The Apostle Paul could say that he was content even when he was locked up in prison, but that didn't mean that he wanted to stay in prison. He hoped to be released. He said that. And contentment doesn't mean that one can't have goals and aspirations. It isn't synonymous with complacency. Paul said that he was eager to travel to Rome. We know that he'd hoped to travel to Spain and to share the gospel there. And and contentment doesn't mean that we have to be in denial about our situation, if you've just lost a limb, having contentment doesn't mean that you have to minimize the loss and say, oh, it's only a flesh wound. I mean, that, that's, that's not contentment, is it? That's, um, that's like being delusional. Nor is contentment a lack of emotions. We know that Jesus wept at the graves of, grave of Lazarus. It's, it tells us in, um, in Matthew's gospel that he grew sorrowful on the eve of his crucifixion. While being content, Paul expressed grief. He longed for companionship in his parchments and his cloak when he was alone in prison. He told the, the, the Christians in Philippi that they could make his joy complete by being united in love and humility. So, a contented Christian is not free from the weight of desires or heartache or trials, but one who has a settled heart and one who can say, regardless of the circumstances, My lot is sufficient. Now, I confess that this is an area where I'm still growing. Uh, The Apostle Paul could assert that he had figured out the secret to contentment. I can't make that claim yet. Uh, Maybe maybe in a couple years when I'm a little older, uh, there can be a part two to the message. Uh, But for now, I just uh, would want to pass along a few insights that I feel Scripture has yielded that can be of benefit to us as it relates to experiencing contentment. I have four thoughts that I'd like to pass along and if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin the first one is this The first thing we should notice is that contentment Was something the apostle paul had to learn so contentment is learned We know this because he's writing from the confines of a roman prison To the believers in Philippi who had sent him a gift, in the Apostle Paul says this, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, for you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have what, help me out here, Learned. learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And now watch this, moments later, what's he going to say again? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me, through him who strengthens me. So twice, in a really short span here, he asserts that contentment is something that he learned. It isn't a gift that just sort of miraculously landed in his lap with any effort on his part. You know, we don't have to learn how to be grumpy, do we? We don't have to learn how to be a little poopy pants or a, a sourpuss. We, we can do that just fine on our own. But, but contentment requires some re-education on our part. It's something that's developed. And I, I think this should be an encouragement to us. If you're not content now... Don't shrug your shoulders and say, oh, I guess I just don't have enough Jesus like these people over there. That's not the way this works. The Apostle Paul wasn't born with contentment either. He had to learn it. And we can learn it. The second thing Scripture tells us about experiencing contentment is that it can't come from possessions. So if you're taking notes, number two is contentment does not equal more money. It can be tempting to think that more money can lead to more contentment. But think about what Scripture has to say about this. In in 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul is cautioning his young protege Timothy to be on guard against the false teachers who were trying to twist the gospel into a means of financial gain. He says in verse 5 that these people that are thinking this He says, they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So they're they're promoting this idea that with godliness, you're going to acquire more. You're going to get better things, more material possessions. And the apostle Paul turns their way of thinking inside out, and he says, yeah, uh, godliness is a means of gain. Um, It does profit us just not the way that you're thinking. But godliness with contentment, now that's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So when contentment, is a companion of godliness, that's great gain. And and the passage acknowledges that if we have food and clothing, we can be content. Uh, That phrase, food and clothing, is a a figure of speech known as synecdoche, in which a part represents a whole. Like if you told someone, hey, that's a nice set of wheels you have there, you're making a comment about their what? Their car. Yeah. So here, food and clothing is referring to life's necessities. He says life's necessities are important. And if you have those, you have enough to be content. And and research confirms this. There was a 2010 study out of Princeton, and researchers looked at the connection between how much people took in per year and their emotional well-being and life evaluation. And they found that making $75,000 a year was the sweet spot for happiness when people dropped below the poverty line, there were lower levels of of happiness Uh, because there was higher stress. It was harder to acquire life's necessities. So scripture isn't saying that, that money is irrelevant. What it's warning against is this myth that a little bit more, just a little bit more, that'll be the icing on the cake. That'll top things off. And it can be easy to get caught up in thinking and dreaming about what we would do with a little bit more. That vacation we'd take, or the car that we'd get, or the weekend home in the mountains we'd purchase, or the way that we would remodel our kitchen, like how we saw on HGTV. But here's the thing. We might get a little bit more, and we might acquire some of those items on our wish list, but they're never going to bring contentment. They will provide a temporary happiness, uh, a quick high, but not lasting contentment. You'll never be able to check off all the items on your wish list. It's like giving your kids access uh, to your Amazon account. (laughs) Stuff is going to keep popping up in your cart. (laughs) Because here's what happens. That new car, it eventually turns into an old car. The stylish uh, new room renovation eventually starts to feel dated. The dream vacation has you yearning for another one. And what happens is as we acquire a little bit more, as our standard of living increases, we have lifestyle creep. And the things that we used to splurge on, which would provide that temporary sense of pleasure, they no longer bring the same satisfaction. And it no longer feels special to get a dessert when you're going out to dinner or to travel first class, or to stay in a little nicer hotel. Even if country singer Chris Jansen was able to buy his boat, and a truck to pull it, and a Yeti 110 eyes down with some silver bullets, it isn't going to give him contentment. He might have some fun on the lake, but if you check back in him, uh, a year later, he's going to be singing a different song. He's going to be singing with third eye blind, I want something else to get me through this semi-charm kind of life. If he's really honest with himself, he's going to be singing with Bono. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or um, for those of you who are part of a a younger generation, that song at the end of Sing Two with Ash and Clay Calloway. (laughs) Contentment. It can't be found through possessions or acquiring a little bit more. The passage we read there in First Timothy, it says it's a snare, it's a trap. The writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, he says it's a chasing after the wind. And uh, what, what, what Paul warns us there in First Timothy is that we can save ourselves a great deal of ruin and destruction if we don't go pursuing financial gain in hopes of finding contentment. Plenty of people with more money than we'll ever learn have tried it. And I I think John Mayer sums it up well in his song, Something's Missing. Here's a guy with a wherewithal to go and buy whatever he wants. He's got plenty of worldly success. And this is what he acknowledges in his song, Something's Missing. He says, I'm dizzy from the shopping mall. I searched for joy, but I bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. So when that ad executive does his job well or her job well, and that thought pops into your head that, ooh, I should get that. I'll have a little bit more contentment that just seems just beyond my reach right now. I don't care what it is they're selling. You reject that idea. We shoot it down. We take that thought captive because it isn't true. The third thing Scripture teaches us about contentment is that it can't come from circumstances. So if you're taking notes, number three is uh, different circumstances doesn't equal more contentment. When we sense disquiet in our heart, it can be tempting to think the solution is some sort of change. Maybe if I had a different job, or if I had a love life like the one that she has or he has, or if we were living closer to family, or if we were to move to the beach, or if I had a four-day work week, you know, then I'd be more content. But the privilege of contentment that God wants us to have isn't one that's dependent upon our circumstances or our situation. Look with me again at Philippians Mm -hmm. chapter 4. Paul says, I have learned in whatever what? Situation. So he's learned in specific situations or in certain situations. How many situations? What's it say? Whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every what? Circumstance. This isn't in some circumstances. He's pretty broad here, isn't he? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And there were times in Paul's life where he experienced abundance. Perhaps he thought back to when he first arrived in Philippi. Some of you might remember this. His first convert there was Lydia. And she was a successful businesswoman. And it tells us that she invited Paul back to her. I said, come stay here. And, and I'm sure um, at Lydia's house, it's probably one of the nicer neighborhoods in Philippi. I'm sure in the pantry it was well stocked. It was choice almonds and cheese and uh, olives, freshly baked bread. When she hosted a dinner party, I'm sure it was choice meats and good wine. And Paul says, as he's writing this letter from the confines of prison, Where he's probably getting, what do you think, one meal a day and you think it's good food? Prison's generally not known for, I mean, that's kind of like a timeless truth, uh, you know. Um, Prison food is never good, whether it's 2,000 years ago or today. Um, This is uh, Tejado Hanschel, who who ministers down in the prison. Is the prison food good? Not at all. all. (laughs) (laughs) He says this, he says, whether, you know, it's prison food or food at Lydia's house, whether I'm staying there or I'm staying in prison. I'm content here the same way I was at her place. So if, if we want contentment, we can't go thinking that a change of circumstances will allow us to acquire it. We can't buy into the um, as soon as syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? As soon as I get that new house or as soon as I graduate, as, as soon as I get a spouse or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or as soon as I get grandkids, or a new job, th- 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 then I'll be content. It doesn't work that way. So, if contentment doesn't come from possessions or circumstances, how does one learn to be content? Well, this leads to a final thought here. The philosopher said that one should be independent of people and circumstances and unfazed by the vicissitudes of external events through self-sufficiency. The Bible, however, never champions self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. Scripture teaches that our sufficiency in all circumstances isn't the result of some sort of inner superhuman strength. It's rooted in faith. We can be independent of the world but only because of a dependence on God. So the former, the the, the kind of contentment that the Stoics were arguing for, came from pride. And the one that Paul wants us to have comes from faith. When Paul says uh, in in verse 13 that he can do all things through him who strengthens me, he isn't saying like, hey, go ahead and put another 45-pound plate on each side of the bar, and I'm going to go ahead and max out at 315. I know this is the verse we see on the ceiling at the gym. Um, He he isn't saying like, hey, you know, go ahead and sign me up for that 5K, and without training, I'm going to go sub-20. He isn't claiming that, you know, there's nothing that's beyond his power. What he is saying is that in all situations, whether good or bad, whether prosperous or adverse, whether mountaintops or valleys, he's able to handle them. He can face all conditions in life, humiliation or exaltation, wealth or poverty, sickness or health. He can endure them all, not because of some inner strength that he has, not because he is able to to sort of conjure up some resources deep within himself to, to rise above his circumstances. He's saying that he can face it all because of his union with one who infuses him with strength. The secret to Paul's contentment the way that he was able to be independent of the world was his dependence upon Christ because Jesus supplied him with strength. He had enough in every circumstance. He was sufficient. Just to unpack this idea a little bit further, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes about this thorn in his flesh. And he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In Greek, that word sufficient is the same root word from which we get the word contentment. One translation translates this it says, my grace is enough. We, we can have contentment in our lives. We can possess that settled temper because of God's magnificent grace. And that grace is enough. Or as uh, Chris Tomlin sang in one of his uh, first albums, "All of you is more than enough for all of me." C.S. Lewis said it this way: "Look at this with me. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only." We come to experience contentment when we realize this: that His grace is enough; that it's sufficient; that it's so adequate. That if we have that and we have nothing else, we have enough. We're taken care of. We're all right. That's what brings contentment. And and Jesus gave us a very tangible way of remembering just how magnificent and sufficient his grace is. We refer to it as the Lord's Supper or as communion. And as we partake of the elements, we're reminded of God's grace of his undeserved favor to us, that the fact that his goodness is running after us. We're reminded that he is for us and that he is able to make all grace abound to us so that we can say in every situation, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that in all things, we're more than conquerors because of him who loved us. You know, before Jesus um, instituted this meal, and my father's kingdom. So we celebrate this meal not only are we to look back on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and we're reminded of the sufficiency of that grace, but there's a great promise here as well. Because when is Jesus going to partake of the cup again? On that day when he drinks it with who? With you, with us, in my father's kingdom. The promise is here is that one day that we will be with Jesus in his Father's kingdom face to face. And I just can't help but think about what it says in Psalm 16 that about in his presence there's fullness of joy. Part of the, 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 just the, the secret to learning contentment I think is not only reflecting on what he's done for us and saving us and his present grace His enabling grace that helps us now but that grace also that will one day glorify us and bring us into his presence. Will there be fullness of joy? Will we will celebrate with him. That's what we're reminded of when we partake of these elements. And I just want to mention that, um, that at River Oaks, communion is o- uh, it's open to everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. And um, if, if that's not you yet, I'd say um, don't, don't partake in this meal. Um, just wait. Uh, use this time just to sort of reflect on your faith and um, what it would mean for you to become a follower of Jesus. Pray about that. Let me take us to the Lord now in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now as your people, acknowledging that you are a good shepherd. And as we Enjoy this meal that you gave us. I pray that you would use it to help us more fully grasp what it is that we have in you. God, we we do not want to be slaves to that that frustrating drive for more. And, and And I pray that you would come and that you would set us free from ingratitude, from discontent, from dissatisfaction from the envy that can sometimes infect our hearts. Lord, we want to be your pupils. We want to learn the secret of contentment and we invite you to teach us. Magnify the grace of contentment in our lives. Lord, whether we have a little or whether we have a lot, we want to experience um, the great gift of your enoughness. We want to live in the in the peace of of your providence and of your provision. And we crave the, the joy that you would want to give. And so as we feast on these elements, would you remind us afresh of every good thing that we have in you? And if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian. You don't know if you really have that relationship with God and the assurance that you'll spend eternity with Him in His presence. I want to give you the opportunity now to make that sure. You can just say a prayer like this in your own heart. Say, God, I recognize that my sin, my attitudes and my actions that that differ from your moral character have separated me from you. And I know that I could never earn my way to heaven by trying to be good enough. And I believe that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life I could never live. And Jesus, I want to accept you now as my Savior. I thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you offer and your willingness to clothe me in your perfect righteousness. And I thank you for sending your spirit into my life. I receive that now, and I commit now to following you all of my days. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hopefully on the way in, uh, you received one of these, and if you didn't, um, the table's in the back. Uh, you can just slip out now and, or even raise your hand and some ushers will bring you one. I'll give you a moment to locate it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, we're told that he took bread and he broke it. and He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. in the same manner after supper he took the cup and when he had given thanks he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins take and drink And we're going to continue to worship the Lord now, and we'll do so by way of song.